You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's guest, who's a former Marine who is now working Outside the political realm, but close enough to help change America. We'll get to that coming up here in just a few moments. But first, our normal announcements. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show and everything we have going on there. Great uh, information on all of our guests and certainly announcements about the show going forward. Don't forget to leave us Apple reviews. We continue to get more of these bad boys. They're great. I get an email every time one of you guys puts one of them in. I get to read the comments. So uh, it's fantastic that you guys love the show so much. But the Apple reviews help us grow the podcast and this Hazard Ground community. So wherever you get your Apple podcast, give us five stars. Leave us a review and let us know why you love the show. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. If you go to our website, hazardground.com, you can click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you right to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, whatever you want to buy. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Also works very easy from your smartphone. If you go to hazardground.com on your browser, it'll redirect you to the app. All your credit card information is saved. Very, very user-friendly. Please follow us on our YouTube channel as well. Just search Hazard Ground on YouTube. We'll be the first one that pops up. Like and uh, subscribe there as well. Uh, all of our video episodes are there on YouTube. And don't forget to download the Kill Cliff TV app, uh, where all of our episodes are also uh, aired in video form on the Killcliff TV app. And our friends at Killcliff and Killcliff.com, don't forget about their great clean energy drinks and their CBD products. Go to Killcliff.com to order all of your CBD products that you use. Uh, I'm a fan of their pre-workout and post-workout non-CBD versions. Uh, they're fantastic stuff. Great company, founded by a former Navy SEAL, and certainly uh, makes some of the best energy drinks on the market. All right, on to this week's guest here. Uh, as uh, it's kind of serendipitous how we came across one another. A former guest on the Hazard Ground is a friend of mine, Garrett Cathcart, uh, is working for a company right now called More Perfect Union. And the founder of this company is a former Marine who graduated from the Naval Academy and served nearly eight years in the Marine Corps with multiple deployments overseas, including two combat deployments to Iraq where he was awarded a Bronze Star for combat there. After the Marine Corps, all he did was enroll at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and then founded a company called Newer International that was designed to eradicate extreme poverty in some of the world's most unstable, vulnerable regions. After doing all that, he decided, okay, well, now that I've helped out the rest of the world, let me come back and help America. And he founded More Perfect Union, which is designed to combat the and help protect, I should say, the American democratic experiment, which is uh, shaky at best these days. Let's welcome Jake Harriman into the Hazard Ground podcast. Jake, welcome, man. And thank you for being here. Thank you, brother. It's a pleasure. All right. Uh, just in completely impressive. I don't know, you know, I, I, not to, not to uh, uh, you know, cast dispersions on all grunts, but I don't know many who went to uh, the Stanford Business School after getting out of uniform. That in and of itself, <laughs> uh, you know, is, is I'm going to have to find the leap there because you swung big, brother. I mean, you know, like it's... A- uh, I mean, look, man, every every school's got a quota and I'm pretty sure they had a quota for a jarhead from West Virginia. So yeah, that's how I got in. There you go. Well, the jarhead from West Virginia decided to go to the Naval Academy. Why? I, uh, I'll be honest, like when I was 
in high school, I, I had never been outside West Virginia. I grew up in poverty uh, in the mountains there in West Virginia. And, and we had, we had never gone anywhere and didn't have you know money for vacations and stuff like that. I, my dad had been in the Navy uh, during Vietnam and he never talked about it a whole lot, but I remember, you know, on, uh, you know, on 4th of July, they used to have those parades, right? So we gather around our little television, black and white TV, and we'd watch the parades and my dad would always like tear up. And I never really, I never really got that. My dad was like, you know, the toughest guy I knew. And I thought, you know, there's something in his eye or something, what's going on there. But over time I began to realize that a lot of his really good buddies were Marines who had really sacrificed everything uh, and had given their lives in that war. And uh, and he really understood the cost of freedom. He and his buddies did. And, and that, uh, you know, America really meant a lot to him, this idea of America. And it was, and it was worth fighting for. It was worth risking everything for. And so, you know, I, I kind of began to develop this kind of sense of, of duty that I, I you know, as an American citizen, you know, born w- with all the freedoms and opportunities that we have, I really believed that I needed to, uh, to serve in some way, you know, like my dad had. And I uh, also wanted to, I bought into the whole uh, movie poster, right? I wanted to travel, see the world, um, live the adventure and excitement uh, at the time. And, and uh, you know, I, I think I watched, it's ironic, actually, Top Gun's coming out on Friday, but I watched the first Top Gun, <laughs> thought I was, was going to be a fighter pilot, right? That and, just um, means you're old now, that's all. That's exactly right. And Tom Cruise uh, is older. Yeah, he is. Uh, and shorter. That too. Um, and, and so... Uh, <laughs> I, I kind of bought into that whole thing that I was going to be a fighter pilot and I heard about the Naval Academy and I had a good buddy who was trying to get in there too. Uh, and so, so yeah, man, I, I, I applied, I was pretty decent at, at sports in school, got, and was able to get uh, kind of a nomination. You know, what's ironic though, is um, I actually got in when I was a high school senior mm-hmm. um, and I got the, the kind of welcome packet and I read that I had to, I had to uh, wear a tie every day and then I had to be in the military for six years and I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't think this is for me. And my, all my buddies were going to West Virginia University to party. And so I thought. Morgantown, baby, let's go. Exactly. So I'm like, okay, well, that's that's the direction I really want to go. Like <laughs> this, this Naval Academy thing is not for me. So I actually turned it down um, and then ended up going to WVU uh, to be with my buddies. And, of course, when you get to school, you realize, like, <laughs> None of that. It's not like you stick with these guys forever, right? And I yeah. began to realize quickly uh, I had made a big mistake, and so I I, I clambered and clawed and 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 uh, you know did did well the first year there at school and was able to fight my way back in. I don't know why they gave me another appointment, but they gave me another appointment. I was able to get back in the academy then. But by the time I got to the naval academy, uh, you know, a lot of people when they go to the academy struggle with this decision: should I stay? Should I quit? Like all this kind of stuff. There was no quitting for me. Like I was all in at that point because I'd seen what was on the other side and I really wanted to do this. I mean, do you look back on that and really marvel at your own level of maturity at that point? I mean, you said, yeah, you realize you're not going to be with these guys forever. But you, most guys don't realize that till they're like 26, 27, not 18. Like you think your freshman <laughs> year of college, these guys are going to be these are my friends for life. Like, you know, listen, I'm smash <laughs> a beer can against my head. Let's be friends forever. I mean, that's, that seems like what an 18-year-old would think. It, it seems very sort of self-aware for you to recognize that there was a different path for you other than, you know, uh, doing keg stands at a frat house in Morgantown. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say um, a lot of stuff happened to me that first year. You know, like I, I was uh, 
I got away from the farm and uh, I got some really, some really close friends. Actually, they're my close friends to this day. And I began to um, learn a lot more about kind of what was out there. And I began to have a hunger to see the world and travel and, uh, and you know, see what was out there. You know, at the time we were not at war and it was a, uh, it was a, you know, kind of, like I said, I kind of bought into the movie poster stuff, travel, see the world, free education, right. Uh, to go, to be able to go to the Academy. Uh, my parents, you know, like I said, they were poor. Um, um, and by the way, my parents, I, I keep talking about us being in poverty, but my parents were awesome. They, they never let me know we were poor. Right. So they, they worked, uh, I mean, they worked their asses off to, to provide for me and my, my siblings and, and provided a good life for us. We lived off the land, grew everything we ate, hunted for meat, had milk, cow, dairy, and butter, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was really, really hard on them, but they, they made it so that we didn't know that we were poor. So it was awesome. Um, but, you know, out of that kind of upbringing, I really just, I really felt like now it was my turn, my turn to serve other people. So you, you signed know? up in a pre-9-11 world. That's right. I was pre nine eleven. Yeah. So, so, when, so, so was I. Yeah. back in yeah back in that day, like when you sign up, it's not like you were going straight to combat, right? No. So, um, you know, I have a lot of admiration for the folks who who signed up either during nine eleven or, or post nine yeah. eleven, who who knew they were they might not have known what they were exactly getting into, but they didn't know they were going to combat. And and I I really uh, have a lot of respect and admiration for for that generation that did that. And I was like you, you know, I mean, listen, I, I tell the story often here on the show, like I. I did ROTC just to pay for college. I t- it was a means to an end when I originally yep. signed up. But I had the same sort of idea you did when I got on active duty. I'm like, you know, I kept hearing about be all I can be, and I'm sitting here at Fort Hood, Texas, being nothing. And so, like, I was <laughs> determined at that point um, to look for someplace else to go because I want. I was like you. I, you know, I felt like I, I was missing out on the experience, and I wanted to see the world. And I remember trying to get on a deployment to Honduras. Um, I was I was assigned to an engineer unit at the time, and they were going to Honduras to build roads or do whatever. I can't remember exactly what it was. It was so long ago. But, you know, and I asked multiple times to get on that thing, and I didn't end up getting on it. And then, lo and behold, you know, right before 9-11, the Clinton administration was downsizing. They were kicking officers off active duty at that point in time. They were saying, see, we don't need you anymore. I mean, yep. for those who don't remember, the Clinton administration downsized the active force to its lowest number since World War II. Um, I know. And yeah. so we, we didn't have a means for – a large full-scale full-time army. And I always tell it, I say it around, you know, you, you talked about going for free college, you know, when I would go to career fairs um, or all my friends were in senior year were going to career fairs and they're like, you're going to the career fair. I'm like, no. And they're like, why? And I'm like, cause I have to go in the army after college. And they're like, well, why don't you get a real job? You know, that was the mentality. Yeah. Like a lot of us, a lot of you guys yeah. went to the service counties. It's like, well, what's the matter? You can't get a real job. Like you can't, you know, you're going to college. Why don't you just go be, you know, a businessman, work on Wall Street, right. do whatever. But it was just a different time. So um, when does 9-11 happen? Are you at the academy when it happens? No, I was uh, I was actually with my first unit, 3rd Battalion, 1st okay. Marines. We'd already come back from our uh, from our first deployment. Uh, and uh, I was actually training in the desert at, in 29 Palms with my unit at the time. And we were actually in, uh, in convoy operations. We were doing immediate action drills. And I, rem- I remember one of my... PFCs, uh, was, uh, on, on, on the radio, he was listening to, to, uh, to a radio, not, not a, not a, uh, military radio, radio. <laughs> not a military radio, a, a, a commercial radio. And I was really pissed. And so I stopped the convoy and I went back there to the Humvee and, and these guys, their faces were white. And I'm like, Hey, what, what, what the fuck's wrong with you guys? 
And then I began to listen. They say, hey, sir, you got to listen to this. And so we started listening. And of course, you know, the news was unfolding. And, and so we got, uh, then we got uh, it, orders straight down on the, on our, on our military radios that, you know, the base was in lockdown. We had to mobilize and get back to headquarters really quickly. We might have to move out right away. And so, yeah, that was, it was really shocking. We didn't see the images. We we heard what was happening yeah. on the radio. Wow. Um, as I can only imagine the thoughts in your mind, like the, the imagination. Oh, man. Wild. We, we thought we were going like that day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of nuts. Um, I wanted to ask you, I just want to back up a quick second, you know, because when you go to the Naval Academy, you have a choice to be a Marine. Not everybody gets to, or at least you have to apply, I think, right, to to be a Marine officer. Yeah. Um, so why did you go down that road as opposed to just being a normal guy in a sub or a destroyer or whatever? This is one of the greatest lessons, I think, for me in my life. I to, to that uh, Up to that point, I had I probably succeeded in just about everything I'd ever tried to do, right? Uh, I'd, I'd really been able to accomplish, um, to, to win contests and, you know, be number one and all this kind of stuff until I got to the Academy for service selection. And when I was, when I got to the Academy, I, uh, there was a SEAL, um, a company uh, officer there. He was a Lieutenant uh, that had been stationed there. And there was also a force recon officer that was there too. I didn't know, I didn't know what the hell force recon was. Those guys didn't talk about themselves and, uh, but everybody knew what the seals were. And so we were, uh, we were all kind of in awe, my buddies and I, this, uh, of the seal and all of us wanted to be seals, right? <laughs> so we all wanted to be seals. Uh, we were all going to kind of go for, there were 15 billets, I think, um, for, the, for my class to buds. And, I really, really wanted that. I mean, I was, you know, it was, it was the A, A type aggressive com- competitor in me. I was, I really wanted to go for that. I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I want to be out in the front lines and kind of doing, my, doing, doing my thing. And so I worked really hard. There were probably 300 guys in my class that were going for those spots. And so I worked really hard, worked my ass off, made it to the last 20, uh, you know, candidates. And then I remember we went home uh, for Thanksgiving break and they were going to call all of us and let us know the results. And I'll never forget getting the call when I was home on Thanksgiving break. And they said, Hey, listen, I'm sorry. You didn't, uh, you didn't make the last, the, you, you got, you were one of the last five that were cut. And man, that was, that was such a crushing blow to my ego, but it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, it really humbled me you know, a lot. And it taught me a lot about um, the power of, you know, you, you, all of us are fallible. All of us have vulnerabilities. All of us have weaknesses. There's always going to be somebody faster, better, stronger, um, smarter than you are, right? Um, and that was really powerful. And then so my second choice was Marine Corps ground. Now, looking back, that would have been my first choice, right? Like right. <laughs> hindsight's twenty twenty. But um, but I was I, I was so grateful that I had picked that as my number two choice because, of course, and I didn't know anything about the, the recon community at the time, I just wanted to be in the infantry. Um, and I, uh, the force recon officer that was there talked a lot about the infantry and he talked to me about, about the community. Um, and then he began to talk to me a little bit about recon, but nobody knew really what that was or what those guys did. And so I kind of went into the Marine Corps hoping just to be an infantry officer and, and, uh, really kind of aspiring for that. I'm like, you know, those, the grunts, they get it done. They're on the front lines. Um, they're the workhorses. Uh, if we ever go to combat, I want to be one of those guys. You know, when you, you have that sort of mentality, but yet you have this sort of uh, salt of the earth background, if you will, 
Um, does any of that connect? I mean, you know, where, where does the, the salt of the earth guy want to become the hard charging front lines battle guy, uh, especially when there was no combat going on at the time, right? Like, I mean, where did they, where do you think that came from? I mean, number one, it was naive. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so, I mean, I, and you probably empathize with this, but like all of us like talking big game about, Hey, we want to be the, if, if there's ever war, if there's ever combat, we want to be the guys on the front lines and, and we want to be the guys kind of duking it out with the most dangerous missions. It was sexy and all this kind of stuff. Um, of course, then you get in combat and, you know, stories get written in combat that, you know, you can't unwrite, right? War is one of the worst things we can do to each other as human beings. It's a necessary evil. We got to take care of evil in this world. And, and we've got our, uh, our armed forces to get that done. But, um, you know, it's, it's not something to wish for. Right. And it's, as a kid, you know, I bought into all the, all the stories and the glory and all that kind of stuff. And I want to be tested. Right. So there's, there was this, I was a, I was an alpha male competitor at sports, everything. I really wanted to be the best of the best. Right. And that's what drove me to want to take the most, you know, the most dangerous missions, the farthest down the front lines, like all that stuff. And again, night, uh, it was naive. Um, it was, uh, at the time it was arrogant. I was arrogant and I, I really needed to be humbled. And, and, uh, you know, I'm a man of faith. I believe God, uh, humbles me constantly. He hits me over the head with a two before time and time again to remind me, um, that, that, uh, I am not the best thing since sliced bread and I've got a lot to learn from, from the incredible people he puts around me. You know, it's weird. Uh, If I may just, I was humbled in a different way. See, like I, you talk about, I never had that romantic nature of battle as a second lieutenant in a pre and a first lieutenant, a pre nine 11 world. I actually sort of thought the army was like a joke. Like I was like, this is too easy. Like I don't have, why am I going to apply myself? You know, like I never really wanted that. Like I was just like, just give me whatever assignment. That's the least amount of work because none of this is really challenging. And I I was too cocky and too arrogant um, to really understand the nature of, of what went on. And I didn't really genuinely truly understand until after my first deployment, what I did find out and what I was humble to find out is that when pushed, you know, and when asked to do really tough jobs, I could do really well at it. Right. Like that's what Mm -hmm. I found out, but Mm -hmm. I never knew until I was sort of thrust into a scenario where I had to really be challenged and challenge myself to get my head out of my ass and realize (laughs) that you, you, you're not as smart as you think you are. You don't know everything. There's a lot that you need to learn. And you know, so like when I first deployed, I was attached to to fifth and tenth special forces group. I'm in a completely different environment. You know, mm-hmm. these are the best of the best, and I'm looking around and I realized quickly that all right, this attitude is not going to fly here. Right. Um, you start running right. your mouth around these folks, you're going to find yourself out of a job very, very quickly, and and it's mm-hmm. not going to end well for you. And so, you know, to your point though, you know that that humbling experience I think that we all have at some point in our career, whether it's early on or late sort of helps shape the rest of the career. And I think it's super important for all of us. And I think it's important too, when you have those humbling experiences, and by the way, it wasn't just one for me, it was many. <laughs> um, but when you have them, it's important to learn from them. Yeah. Right. Like you got to do the hot wash and try to figure out what happened, why it happened, what you can learn from it, how you can grow from it. How do you, can be, how you can be a better leader for your men? Right. I mean, that was really important for me. Every time that I got knocked down, I had to, as I was getting back up, I had to try to understand, what am I supposed to learn from this? And how do I, how do I get better? 
All right, so let's fast forward back. Uh, we're now post 9-11, um, and your two combat deployments were to Iraq. So in the, in the months after 9-11, you guys think you're going somewhere, but clearly it doesn't happen. So what's going on? So we ended up uh, continuing the workup uh, for MUSOC, um, ended up deploying uh, into the, uh, in the, in the Gulf of Aden. We, the, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but Camp Liminaire had not been set up yet in Djibouti. Yep. Um, we ended up uh, kind of helping get that off the ground. There was a lot of activity, some, some counter-terrorist activity across the Gulf, obviously, in Yemen. Um, and uh, the, uh, uh, the USS Cole got hit, and we were – uh, we were there trying to uh, to help out with that. That was right before 9-11 mm-hmm. um, yep. in, in 2000. And then, of course, after 9-11, we were back in that area um, trying to help stand, stand up Camp Luminaire. And, um, yeah, the, the, the uh, everything was very chaotic at the time. I had a buddy of mine who to this day is, uh, one, of my, is, is uh, one of my best friends who was in, the, in one of the Marine units. He was the first, first LAR that deployed with Mattis, as the as the Marine uh, uh, unit that was deployed into into Afghanistan right after 9 eleven, so mm-hmm. he was he was on the float in front of me, and so we were all anxious to get into the fight, and we were kind of sitting there um, in the Gulf of Aden trying to uh, to to do some low intensity stuff, you know, nothing nothing high intensity at all. But I remember then uh, coming home from that thinking that we were going to miss the war because Afghanistan was going on. Everybody was, you know, you had a lot of the soft guys that were deploying going in there. Um, and that it looked like that was going to, ironically, that was going to be mopped up pretty quickly. Um, you know, with the work that jawbreaker and all those guys did on in, in the early days. Yeah. Um, of course, none of us knew, you know, how, how, uh, there was going to be. None of us knew we didn't have an exit plan. None of us yeah, knew that right. we didn't think about ever leaving. It just right. never occurred to us. We just thought the, the unconditional surrender was going to be enough. And now we're all standing around going, now what? Now what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> but I remember we, we came home from that float and we got off the ships. I got all my guys home. Uh, I just, you know, basically got, um, rented a new crappy apartment down there in Oceanside, California. And right as I moved uh, moved in, I got called back by my battalion XO, and he's like, "Hey, uh, you guys got you got to get get your guys mobilized again. We're going back." I'm like, "What do you mean we're going back?" And you know, there had been rumors about a potential uh, invasion of Iraq, and uh, you know, but we didn't know a whole lot about it. Uh, but as as we were coming back, we were the the most um, seasoned. Battalion in the Marine Corps at that point, mm-hmm. uh, third, third Battalion, First Marines, because we had just come back from our deployment, and they wanted us up on the front lines um, in the battle order for the invasion. So um, we had to scramble. I couldn't believe it. We had just got all these guys home, their families, and everything. So we scrambled, mobilized the battalion. I mobilized my guys. We all got back, uh, did some last minute training, and then got back on the ships and headed back over uh, for the invasion. And um, you know, they, they had already moved, begun moving units. Uh, First Marine Division was already kind of up in the battle order, ready to go. Task Force Taro was there with us, and uh, they moved us up on the uh, on the LD there on the on the border with Kuwait. All right, so take me through the mindset. Uh, young kid full of piss and vinegar wants to be the best infantryman there ever is. Wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Wanted to do all these things, uh, and it's easy to want to do those things when. In the back of your mind, the worst thing that happens is you fail. Now you're being thrust into a scenario where 
the worst thing that happens is you end up dead and coming home <laughs> in a box. Yeah. Uh, do you do you have that thought, or, or are you just still so full of you know vigor about this whole thing that you're not even that's not even entering your mind that something bad could happen to you? Does it change your perspective a little bit? I think um, there was a, there was a little bit of thinking about that. You know, they they did some. Uh, you know, we, we did some training and some reading on, uh, on, on that was very different for that deployment. You know, we, we did uh, study like killology and some of these other books about, um, you know, about the, the darker side of war and some of this stuff. So it definitely made you think a lot about, about combat, like what was it going to be like, you know, how am I going to stand the test? I want to be tested. Am I going to rise to the occasion? Um, I, you know, you wanted to be there for your men. But even in that time, it was more of a a sense of excitement that we were going to be in the action on the front lines, and that we were going to be able to prove ourselves. Right, right. And so, uh, which is, you know, I think a lot of young uh, uh, young guys who get in and, and gals um, get in and are uh, they have that kind of attitude. You know, they want to be proven um, in combat, and so and it's tough to it's tough to you, you can't teach that away right um, because until you've experienced combat until you've actually smelled it and lived it and been in it it's really hard to like no matter what kind of training or what you read or what you watch like it's really hard to instill that in somebody um, so you just got to do the best you can to instill these lessons learned in folks before they get over it so that once the rounds start flying that training that habitual training that has just been beaten into you just kind of kicks in right it's like an yeah. instinct so the invasion of Iraq happens. What is your guys' role in the whole thing? Yeah, so we were um, we were one of the uh, the lead units for the Marine Corps. So RCT one uh, and Task Force Taro, we were tasked with uh, kind of going straight up through the gut through southern Iraq mm-hmm. um, uh, along the main avenue of approach, which was called Highway Seven at the time. Um, I thought it was around sh- Tampa, or was that a different one? Uh, well, the actual highway itself. Okay, highway, yeah, called, we, we call highway it Route 7. Tampa, at least in the Army, yeah. it was Route Tampa. There you go. That's right. It was Route Tampa. That's okay. exactly what it was. That's the one that goes from Basra all the way up to Baghdad and then all the way up to Mosul. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So we were tasked with going straight up the gut um, and just, you know, clearing as we go. And, and uh, you know, there were obviously in the in the briefings, there was like enemy uh, hiding in every in every village and all this kind of stuff. Turned out, you know, these guys were retreating, most of them. Um, kind of along the way, and and it wasn't uh, you know it, it wasn't high intensity in the beginning. Now things started changing when we hit Nasiriyah. I don't know if you remember the battle in Nasiriyah. Yep. yep. Um, things started getting ugly, but um, up to that point, uh, I'll just never I'll never forget. You know, I was sitting I was sitting in a, in a fighting hole with my guys um, on the border there in Kuwait. You know, the, the, we had the tank berm right mm-hmm. on the border. The, the Mick licks were set, you know, to blow if, uh, if we were going to go. And I'll never forget, we were running drills, you know, because remember we were all Mop 4, <laughs> you know, you donning your gas mask, all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And we were running drill after drill after drill. And I'll never forget, I heard over the radio, lightning, lightning, lightning. It was a brevity code for incoming scud missiles. And I thought it was another drill. So, I, you know, I'm like, hey, guys, get your, get your gas mask out, get back in your holes. And all of a sudden, you start looking up and you start seeing these things coming over our heads. And we had incoming scuds, not on our position, but behind us. So the scuds, if you remember, they weren't very good at, like, aiming, right? So these things were coming in and they were hitting behind us. <clears throat> and 
we were all diving into our holes at this point. Um, kind of like, holy shit, this is real. And I'll never forget my company commander comes down the line and says, you know, he starts yelling, hey, get your guys in your trucks. The president just said we're going. Um, it's time to go. So all of us started loading up the trucks. I ran down to our sister platoon and uh, to a buddy of mine, John Chow, who's one of my classmates from Navy. And we traded letters. You know, you write the 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 letters to your loved ones, right, that you that you give to your, to your best friend in case right. something happens. And that was a weird moment. You know, I, I never expected to use that thing, you know. Um, but I, I gave it to him. He gave it to me, you know, just uh, gave him a big hug and said, hey, man, uh, I'll see you on the other side. And went back to the trucks, and then it blew the Micklicks, opened up the, the breach, and then uh, then we went through. And as we were going through, you know, you got the Tomahawks flying over overhead north to north toward Baghdad. It was already was firing. It was going off. And uh, and it was just an insane launch to the war. And then as we go through, uh, as I met, as I mentioned, we kind of start sweeping really quickly through southern Iraq. And of course, then we get to Nasiriyah. We've been we've been briefed that um, that the enemy had evacuated from the city um, when, in fact, that wasn't the case. Right, so a lot of those guys had been, had put on plain clothes, and there was a group of like fifty of them that had shown up that waving the little white flag, saying they were going to surrender. And some Marines from Task Force Tarwell went up to to uh, secure them as POWs and began processing them, and they all pulled out weapons and started mowing those guys down, Ooh. and um, and there was a big ambush. So Task Force Tarwell got mired down. We had to move through and basically set a corridor. Um, in Nasiriyah to open it up for the division to go through, to go through the city. And, and it was crazy. It was, it was, that was the first, you know, real combat um, that I'd ever experienced. And I, you know, uh, and it's the same stuff that everybody sees. Right. So, but you know, you, I just remember visual, you know, very visual images kind of stamped on your brain. You know, you got, um, you're, you're pulling up alongside, uh, the wreckage of these tanks, you know, and, and these, these, um, these Iraqis who are, you know, cut in half and the, the top half of their body still crawling toward you. And you got other guys who are just totally flattened by the tracks. Um, and it's, uh, it's a real dehumanizing kind of experience that you don't even process in the moment. Right. And you're shooting your weapon and at, at, at people in black who are carrying weapons and, and uh, and it was a crazy time too because it was it was very unclear. A lot of the enemy that we were fighting were actually Fedayeen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember those guys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. These were, these were kind of the the jokers that were Saddam's SF guys. You know that he recruited um, from the from the villages essentially. And those guys were going to the villages and they were recruiting these poor guys who didn't even know what was going on. You know, um, saying, "Hey, your kids are starving to death." Uh, you know, we'll drop off a bag of food here, pick up this weapon, and go fight these guys. And, uh, and it was women too. You know, that was, it was just a very gray time. We'd be going through these towns where they'd be ambushing us and we'd be shooting at, you know, sometimes women running toward our position with weapons, trying to shoot us. And that was just a really hard beginning. But as that stuff's ha- happening, you begin to feel your heart harden. Um, and you just kind of go into mechanical mode, you know? Yeah. I mean, sure was there a part of you at the time after what happened in Nasiriya and you get your first real combat experience? Was there a part of you that thought you'd made a mistake with this decision in your life? Was there a part of you that wanted to undo any of this? 
not at that point. No. Um, my focus at that point was I got to get everybody home. Right. We, we got to get at, We got to get through this. We got to we got to get this thing done. And then I got to get all these guys home, you know, because um, the human side, it, it, you just don't I, I just didn't even start. I wasn't even thinking about yeah. that stuff. You know, I was just kind of in uh, in go mode at that point. You know, yeah, I was I, I think you don't have a choice. I, I think you have to be able to almost flip a switch. Shut yeah. it down. Deal with the emotional stuff later. But right now, there are more pressing issues than right. you know worrying about. And it's always one of those things. Uh, and, and I don't know if it's happened to you, but it, you know, when, when bad things start happening, and you know, there are people who are screaming at you that are completely obvious. You know, they're shooting at us. No shit. Okay. Instead of looking at me, turn around and face them and start firing back. Like, you know, it's just like you have to remind them of the simple stuff because emotionally, sometimes it just overtakes certain people. I was Mm -hmm. one of them who just, uh, we'll worry about this later, man. You know, like we figured, figure this out, get out alive first and then we'll we'll discuss all the other stuff. And so, you know, uh, I, I get it, but there are some people who have those emotional moments who are self-aware or just go, oh, shit, uh, how, do I, I will, how do I get here? I, I will say that, you know, I mean, the Marine Corps beats this into you, like the training. Yeah. Like, I mean, train and train and train, rehearse, 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 right? I mean, it's just like just beating it into you over and over again. But, man, it was – and even when I was at Force 2, like, I mean, how many times you run through the kill house like again and again and again? But um, that – that routine and that rehearsal and that that practice and that training, it really does kick in, right? Those who are who who do the most training, those who actually are are um, who take the time to prepare as much as possible, I found that that uh, you have a lot fewer guys who go to that emotional side immediately, right? Instead, when rounds start flying, things shit starts getting real. Their training starts kicking in, and everybody starts moving and doing what yeah. they're they're supposed to be doing. They've done a thousand times, right? Um, and improvising as they go. And I remember like, I didn't even have a human thought. I mean, what I would call a human thought, like any kind of emotional thought until we got pulled off the front lines after like, you know, mission accomplished bag. We took Baghdad and uh, they pulled us off the front lines for retrograde. And we were in Diwania. Um, ah. Actually we called camp diarrhea because everybody had caught, you know, whatever, whatever disease was there. And, uh, we were, I think we were there for a couple weeks with no combat. And so you're sitting around doing nothing, playing, you know, playing cards. I mean, stand and post, stand and watch, but then you're off the lines there. You're trying to like, you're trying to wash your camis you've been wearing for the last, I don't know how many weeks. And you never even changed them in an ammo can. And as you're doing that, you're trying to think about, you start thinking about stuff, right? And then you start like pushing it away because you don't want to start thinking about it because then when you start thinking about it, some weird shit starts coming up. And uh, and that's when guys get in this vicious cycle, of, like repressing it, repressing it, right, pushing it down. Don't let that stuff come up, you know. Um, Did that happen to you? Oh yeah, man. I I I, uh, I I I just I put that in a dark place and never thought about it. And, and I didn't deal with that until till much later. And then when I started dealing with it later, it was uh, in an unhealthy way. <clears throat> um, and actually, I really believe. Uh, man, I really believe God saved me from, from myself um, many times. But the work I did after I got out of the Marine Corps, um, I don't know if you've heard much about like post-traumatic. We all know about PTS, yeah. post-traumatic yeah. growth. 
um, post-traumatic growth is a real thing. And the work that I ended up doing afterwards really helped me process and work through a lot of that stuff um, yeah. that, uh, that helped, me, helped me get on the other side of that stuff. I mean, look, you know, uh, I've, I've told this, uh, started to tell this here on the show, but, you know, this show is part of the reason why I've actually sat down and started dealing with some of my own stuff, you know, and just constantly yeah. hearing it from people and constantly hearing people tell how they decided to go and really address the thing. And, and uh, you know, you, you beat your head against the brick wall thinking everything is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you realize it's not. And and that's, you know, part of more of that humbling experience talked about earlier that we all have to come to at some point in time, because as you've said, as you've alluded to before, you know, combat, it, it changes you like there, there's no if ands or buts about it. The person you were before combat is dead uh, and that person will never come back and you are somebody different. And, and we all have to live with the constructs of that. And that is part of the post-traumatic growth that you're talking about. I, I will say it's funny when you said that because the third my first reaction to when you said that was. I'm not at the growth stage yet. I'm still dealing with the disorder stage, if you will. Um, but you have to understand it's a long process, right? Like none of this it stuff is, happens a, it, at a snap of a finger. It's a long process, brother. And, you know, what's what's important that I've found is that we, we build community around ourselves. And it's different for every person. But you got to build community around yourself uh, of, of your buddies and or your close family members or whatever it is where you can really be honest and open. And, and it's got to be an environment of trust. And you have to allow yourself to go there. And it is ugly in the beginning. But um, if you're able to do that and if you're able to also understand and like you're doing that with this podcast, you know, th- this podcast is helping veterans. Right. And it's helping explain to civilians um, what veterans go through and also not just what we go through. We're not just broken, right? Like we're also a strategic asset for the country. And I think what we as veterans, like we're hardwired for service. We're hardwired for a mission and a purpose, right? And when we don't have that, then all that dark stuff starts to eat us up, right? But when we have that purpose and we have that mission, and then all those experiences that we've had in the past can actually be used for positive things to impact the lives of other people. Absolutely. And, and that's why I'd like to encourage other guys and gals who are going through this um, is find your North Star and your new purpose and your new mission, the new hill to take. Once you find that, latch onto that. And all those, all those negative things that are kind of eating you up, that you begin understanding that those experiences can actually be used for light and hope and impact on the lives of other people in a really positive way. Yeah, uh, well said. So when you get back from that first deployment, what time, month, year, frame, time frame are we looking at? Um, so it was right after the initial invasion was over. Um, so I'm thinking... Uh, April, May time frame of... of it, it, was, it, was probably, it was probably June okay. when, we, when we got back. Are you at that point in time saying like, hey, uh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Have you started to rethink the decision? I mean, you know, where are you mentally with after this combat experience that sort of left such an indelible mark on you? How are you where's your headspace? So I um, I had been so when I when I first got when I ended up getting into the infantry and I was in infantry officers course for the Marine Corps, uh, I started learning about force recon i started hearing about it you know there were a couple of uh, officers there a couple of enlisted guys that had been you know through the indoc and they they actually were from the recon community and uh, as i learned more about it 
um, I love the kind of quiet, professional kind of humility of the community. And these were the guys who did the toughest missions. They were doing the deep RNS, the, the direct action raids, like all the stuff that, you know, whoever it was, you know, the SEALs and, and, uh, and like SF guys or the CAG or whoever would do on the, in the other branches. That was like the unit for us in the Marine Corps that did that. And, and as I learned more about it, I really want to be a part of that community. So as a second lieutenant, and it was really funny because in, in the Marine Corps, the way that works in Force Recon, you don't just go as a boot, you know, officer, enlisted guy over into that community. You actually had to be proven and kind of tested. And then it's kind of like a, hey, we'll call you, don't call us kind of thing. And then you got to go in and you got to do this kind of brutal selection and then all the schools phase and you got to pass all that stuff before you ever get to the unit. So I, when I was a boot second lieutenant, got out of infantry officer course, got showed up to my unit in 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines. And I heard that there was a force recon indoc going on like the next week. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do that. Well, you just don't, you don't go just do that, right? Like, like I said, they call you and, t- and the guys who go over there are, are usually junior captains. Here I was like a boot, you know, boot lieutenant. And uh, I just wasn't going to take no for an answer. So I show up at like zero four, you know, zero dark 30. It's like four in the morning at the pull-up bars. You got to show up with all your kit and all your gear. And it was chaos, right? So the instructors are screaming and you got all these guys, you know, in green on green. And they're, they're there to kind of show up to do the end doc. So there wasn't a lot of like, ch- you know, checking everybody's registration and everything. So I kind of snuck in. <laughs> and so I started doing this end doc and I get about halfway through and then we get into pool phase and I'm literally drowning in the pool. I, I, I'm like, I'm just getting destroyed. And so one of the instructors looks over and is like, hey, who's that fucking guy in the pool? Like, <laughs> you know, like I don't see him on, on any list. And, and, and so they yanked me out of the pool and he, I, I come over and he's like, hey, who the fuck are you? And I said, hey, sir, I'm uh, Second Lieutenant Herman. He's like, and I started explaining. He's like, Second Lieutenant? He said, what the fuck are you doing here? And I said, hey, sir, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just here to take the end. I was like, hey, buddy, that's not how it works. Go back to your unit. When you get some hair on your balls, like maybe we'll give you a call. <laughs> and it was the best thing ever because, like, I, he just, like, crushed me. And I went back to my unit, you know, and. How but I much made did it, you get ribbed on by your, by your oh, fellow Marines? Constant. Oh, constant. God. But it was funny because of that. I kind of became a. It was kind of a little bit legendary that I that I had the audacity just to like to show up. show up. Yeah, and it actually helped me later on. Um, those guys remember me at the unit, um, but I worked my ass off to train to go back and take the end off. And then I started deploying with Third Battalion, First Marines, some right. amazing guys in the infantry that I worked with. And so I remember coming home from the war, and I I had been um, again. It's like they call you, don't call them, kind of thing. And um, I didn't expect anything, but I got, I actually got contacted on the ship on the way home and they asked me to come over and take the end off. And so, you know, at that point in my career, I was like a lot of crazy shit had happened. I hadn't really processed it much, but, but here's this unit I've been working so long and hard to get to. And I I just thought I had to take a shot, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's when I went over and, and train. I can't believe life. you weren't skeptical when when you got the, the the notification. Like, all right, are they messing with me now? Because I, oh, I was totally skeptical. <laughs> I was totally skeptical. You know, uh, I, I was totally skeptical, but you know, uh, but it ended up being real. All right, so know, this happens between your first and second tours to Iraq. Yes. Okay. 
Yeah. How how does the in doc go when you go for the first time? For real, I mean. The well, well, the the first time I went, I just got crushed. I mean, I was like, it was awful. Second time I went, um, you know, it was really fucking hard, but you know, uh, I was able to do really well. You know, so um, finished uh, um, finished first on the on the at the end of it, and um, you know, I was able to to kind of make it in. You know, Good. and. And there were a lot of guys in the unit. Actually, some of those guys I took the end doc with ended up being some of my best best buddies who, who worked with me on my in my first platoon. Um, really, really good dudes. And some of them were just they're amazing. A couple of them went on to work at CAG or over the Ground Branch or some other places, mm-hmm. um, doing really great work for the country. They're really, really good people. And um, so I. I was able to pass the end doc, uh, and after that went into schools phase, which is another kind of brutal um, screening. Essentially, uh, was able to make it through schools phase with some pretty funny stories. Like jump school, uh, almost died in jump school. That was kind of a, a crazy experience, um, but did the whole thing. You know the the uh, you know BR basic reconnaissance course, sear, jump, dive, all that stuff to kind of get qualified. And then uh, when I made it through, came back, was uh, assigned a platoon. So first mm-hmm. platoon at the Force Recon Company, uh, at First Force Company. And uh, I just had an amazing group of guys. These guys, it was, it was super intimidating for me because by, by now I learned that um, I was not the fast, fastest, best, you know, smartest, toughest guy, that these guys were like incredible. Like this was the best of the best. A lot of the guys in my in my platoon had you know fifteen eighteen years of experience. Here I was, I had like four years of experience or five years uh, you know experience. I was the I was the least experienced guy there, and it was really daunting, you know. And so I I did a lot of listening, and I just decided I got to earn these guys trust and respect um, before I you know kind of earn the right to speak, earn the right to lead these guys. And so I really worked at that. Yeah, and I, I assume that your your second deployment to Iraq was vastly different than the first, just given the nature of yeah. the uh, of yeah. the job. When do you go back and uh, with what you can feel comfortable saying? What was the mission set for it? Oh five. Um, okay, I was there in 05. Oh cool, very cool. So yeah, we'll talk a lot about it, but the, I mean, there were two main things that we did. Um, one was the, so they were trying to install the the uh, new Iraqi. Uh, parliament yep. at the time. I was and there so, for the voting. All purple fingers, remember? Oh, there remember you purple go. Fingers? Uh, so you probably remember then a lot of them were getting assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a, there was an area southeast of Baghdad um, that was kind of like untouched by coalition forces. Nobody knew what was going on there, but all the attacks were being launched out of there. So we, <clears throat> we did some RNS work there to kind of identify various cells. And then, um, we were also then the follow on task after that was we would do night after night kind of direct action hits to snatch these guys or take them out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was our main, that was our, our two main mission sets were to do this kind of deep RNS and uh, to do direct action raids to, to cap, cap uh, these capture kill missions, these uh, uh, HVIs or HVTs at the time we called HVTs. All right. So when you get to go get high value targets, I mean, obviously the, the nature of the work is uh, is different. Um, are you 
since you've sort of been humbled, I mean, are you feeling any more, I don't want to say insecure, but like, do you look at the job as a different level of challenge because of this new unit that you're in uh, and you're sort of starting fresh again, if that makes sense? Yeah, I had a totally different mindset at that point. So I had, um, I've been humbled several times at that point, you know, so I really went into my unit at force um, wanting to learn. And uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, I, uh, at this point, my whole adult life has been about leadership, which just means that I've made every mistake possible as a leader. And most of the lessons I learned about leadership actually came from my guys, uh, that the things that they taught me. And so I, um, you know, we had, we had some incredible, uh, experiences together. And I remember, you know, um, my attitude going into these, uh, the, all of this, um, this during this period of time when I was operating with the unit there was very, very different. Um, and really in a kind of, um, everything was much smoother. It was, it was chaotic, right? Every time you do a hit, a hit it's chaotic, right? But, but the way the unit operates together, um, it's much tighter, right? Obviously you kind of know what everybody's going to do before they even say anything. Um, it's more like kind of like flowing like water right through these targets. And um, I remember one, one thing, mission in particular that was just so chaotic. Uh, I'll tell you a story real quick if, sure, if, uh, if you've got time. So one time, this one night we got this target package from, uh, from the agency, this high-value high guy. He was pretty high up on the list of uh, Saddam's um, leadership. And um, so I, I called in my team leaders. You know, All three of them came in. We, we kind of put together the, the plan. It was going to be helo, hard hit, uh, middle of the night. Um, you know, sometimes we do soft insert. All this. this was going to be a hard hit uh, because of the nature of the target and the guys on the target, the enemy on the target, and, and the reinforcements in the area. We had to get in and out quickly and get this guy out. We had to bring him back alive. Right. And so, um, you know, we usually get the best kind of most seasoned pilots, you know, in uh, that are available in, in the area of theater of operations. But it was a super busy time, right? So there were a lot of, uh, there were several units actually operating in the area. Um, most of the pilots um, were happened to be out. So I went to brief the pilots on, on the mission set. There were, uh, we were going to be four helicopters. We're going to do this, this, uh, this hard hit. And I walked in and I thought I was looking at, uh, into the ready room, you know, the ready room is like where, uh, where the pilots hang out, they, right. you know, eat, eat coffee and donuts and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I walked in and I remember looking across the table and I thought these were like four high school students sitting there. I mean, it's these young guys. I'm like, Hey guys, I think I'm in the wrong place. Sorry. I'm, a, I'm in the wrong room and start to turn around. They're like, no, no, you, you Captain Harriman, you're here to get you know, this guy. So-and-so. And I'm like, yeah, who are you guys? They're like, we're your pilots. I'm like, you guys are not my pilots. Like, there's no way. I mean, if you guys even been through flight school, of course they were offended. You know, then they, of course they, they they convinced me. They wanted to convince me that they had all the confidence and the experience and all this kind of stuff. So I'm like, okay, and this this is my only option. So I briefed these guys on the plan. And so one o'clock in the morning, we go. We I go back, brief the guys. We do test fire, and then we go to the airfield uh, and load up on the helicopters about one in the morning and take off uh, and start heading in. And of course, as we start coming in over the target, we start taking small arms fire, right? Which happens on every mission. Sure. But these pilots were so green, they'd never been shot at. And so I'm uh, in, in my, I got caught in my comms in one ear 
I'm hearing the pilots like screaming. They're like, holy shit. Like they're shooting at us. Like you said, they're shooting at us. And they, they start banking those helicopters everywhere. There's four helicopters, four sticks. They start banking the helicopters everywhere. And they ended up, those knuckleheads set us down on about a kilometer radius away from one another. Uh, and from the tar- one stick gets set down right on the target. And the other three are like all over bad guy country, right? Mm. And we have no idea where we are. They basically kicked us off the aircraft and took off. So <laughs> you can imagine it's chaos, right? So uh, one of my team leaders uh, is call sign DC. Like he, he's like, he's on the stick with me. He's kind of getting the guys in the security perimeter. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And one year I got my team leaders yelling, hey, we got no idea where we are. I've got one of the team leaders on the target and they're engaged with the enemy. Um, and I'm ashamed to say in all my training, all the missions we did, man, I, I froze. I had this like decision paralysis. I, I didn't know what to do. And I'll never forget um, D.C., turned around and kind of did a double take when he saw me looking there like a stupid idiot. He runs over and he punched me as hard as he could. And it, it like totally, I mean, it, it like knocked me out of my, out of my days. And he grabbed me by the vest. And he said, Hey man, he's like, Hey, sir, you, you've got it. You've got to get, get, get yourself out of this. Like you got to wake the fuck up. You know, we've got to make a decision here. Everybody's looking at you to make it, make a call. You got to get us out of this. I'm like, DC, we got I don't know where everybody is. Like, I, all the, you know, I start freaking out. He's like, shakes me. He's like, hey, stay here with me. Take two minutes, okay? Calm down. Take some deep breaths. Take two minutes. Think about the assets we have. We're going to get out of this, but you've got to come up with a plan for us now, okay? And you can do this. So then he goes back in the perimeter. So I start thinking about what we got. And I remember we had an AC-130, a Spectre gunship overhead. And I don't know if you remember those things had this thing called, we, well, we called it the finger of God. It's essentially a marking laser, right? So yep. the infrared laser marked the targets so we can call in stuff on different targets. But on a cloudy night, if you look with your nods up in the sky, you can actually see the beam, mm-hmm. you know, coming down. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, shit. Well, so I called up the pilots and I said, hey, light the target up with the finger of God. So they light the target up and... You know, and, I, and then I get on the radio with my team leaders. I say, hey, guys, look up in the sky with your nods. See the beam. That's where the target is. Everybody vector in on the target, start moving on the target. So we start all running through the alleyways. We finally get um, into where the actual target is. By some miracle guy, that guy's still there. We blew the – we did a simultaneous breach, blew the doors, start working the target, grab the guy, get out, and – um Right. Finally, those knuckleheads come back in. We get him on the on the birds, and as we're taking off, the reinforcements, the enemy reinforcements, are showing up with their technicals, wow. shooting at us on the way out. It was a total miracle, man. All those guys that we that we got everybody out alive. We got the target. But now, hold on. You you have to when you finally meet up with everybody. Are you like how in that? How lucky did I get? Or I mean, what do you think? Oh was yeah. The- I'm like I can't believe this is happening. Like this is a miracle. First of all, like the fact we all found the target. <laughs> and the fact that that guy didn't leave, you know, he, he had like, he had ample time to like did him out of there. Right. But for whatever reason, like he thought, I, I think it's because he thought my, that one stick that landed there, that was the only team coming to get, to get him. Right. And he had, he had bodyguards there. He had, he had security forces that were engaged with them and thought that they might be able to make quick work of them. Um, and they were doing great though, uh, holding their own. But by the time we showed up, 
then they didn't even see us coming. You know, we blew we blew the door and and started working for the backside. And of course, when you got back to base, it went just exactly as I planned, sir. Everything (laughs) went to plan. Don't say anything, guys, please. Oh man, but but that's just a great classic example of like how my guys taught me a lot, right? Like DC taught me a lot about in in the times of chaos and uncertainty, you got to you got to be decisive. You got to take decisive action. You know, as a leader, people are looking to you to make a call, right? And, and you can't wait for 100 percent of the information, especially in combat, right? Yeah, so yeah. you're never going to get 100 percent of your information. You got to act on, you know, 60, 70 percent of the information to be able to execute the target. I mean, it is. In fairness to you, and, and I've been there, there. There are those moments where it hits you, and your heart drops in your stomach, and you just go, "Oh shit, what do I do?" You know, like you, and and it's. I think it's natural. I don't think. I mean, look, there are some leaders who. Snap of a finger, they got it, right? Like, it, it's just, th- there are other people who are like normal humans like me who just realize, oh, I just crapped my pants. Uh, now, before <laughs> I clean myself up, I better figure out how to get out of this first. So, you know, um, I-, I think it's understandable, you know, but I also, I-, I feel like you look back on that moment when someone's got you by the collar and he's staring you right in the eye. And I think even civilians can relate to this. At some point, you've been in an interaction with a friend or a loved one who grabs you close and just says, Get it together now, yeah. and it's like the right. ultimate wake up call that you need. Um, and you trust hear, that person, right? To hear from and somebody you, you love that or trust that that isn't telling you to to condescend to you or to uh, you know berate you. They're telling you because they believe in you and they know That's that right. what, what is they're seeing manifest itself is not who you are. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, great stuff. All right, um, I, I I you know. I would ask about, in general, sort of combat loss and how you've dealt with it and what it's like for you. Um, you know, again, you talked about the story in, in Nasiriyah and, and, you know, you see that stuff up close. On the second deployment, is there more casualty? Is there more loss for you guys? So um, I feel like one of the most blessed guys ever. Uh, we did, I don't know how many missions. Um, all, of a, all the guys in my unit made it back home. Wow. And I, I feel really, really blessed to be able to say that. Um, so I did not have to suffer um, the, 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 the tragedy of losing one of my guys, you know, within my unit. Now, we had a very, we had a very small unit, right? There was only 25 of us. But um, I never had to go through that. And I'm really, really, really thankful for that. Um, we've obviously lost other guys. Uh, outside the unit um, or outside of the platoon from the unit, right. uh, which was, was uh, really hard. Um, and uh, even in, in my infantry unit too, at the third battalion, first Marine, same thing, you know, and whether it was on the, the deployment, I was with them or even in subsequent deployments too, like three, one also was one of the units, um, the main uh, units during uh, the, uh, during Fallujah. Right. So, um, they ended up taking heavy casualties uh, and lost a lot of uh, lost a lot of my buddies in that in that engagement as well. So, um, you know, we all deal with loss in different ways, um, and I think, you know, there the closer it is to you, um, I always wondered how I would handle it if I lost one of my own men, one of my own guys yeah. in my team that I was responsible for. Uh, I, I have some really good friends that that happened to, and uh, it's got to be one of the most heartbreaking things for a human being to go through. 
Um, I thankfully did not have to go through that. Um, while, while losing friends, I, I did not have to uh, go through the, the, the heartbreak of losing one of my own guys. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm fortunate. Again, same. I've been at enough ceremonies with the boots and the Kevlar and the dog tags that, that you know, I care to, to recount. Um, I've seen enough of it, but uh, it's never been one of one of my guys. And never one of the ones where you are in command of these folks and bring them all home safe. Uh, and, and you're right, I can't imagine. So, you know, I... I I'm thankful for you, but obviously the experience is something that we, we certainly can relate to, um, to say the Absolutely. least. All right, so that combat deployment ends and mm-hmm. you're back. Um, yep. how, many, how many years deep are you into the, your eight years now? What is it, six plus years now? No, actually, after that deployment, um, that, was my, that was my final deployment. That was my fourth deployment. Okay. Um, and I uh, started rotating out. And that was a really hard decision for me. Um, you know, I... Maybe I'll back up and tell you one more story sure, about what happened during my time at 3-1. I had an experience, a pretty personal experience during the invasion that shaped my desire to go, um, once my time was up, to transition out and maybe seek another way to help uh, help address what I thought was a pretty critical gap in our national security strategy. So um, we were, it was actually right after Nasseria, we were, we were kind of dug in on, on that main route um, and waiting resupply. We'd run really low. And at the time, as I mentioned, Southern Iraq was pretty was a pretty impoverished place, right? Um, the regular Iraqi army had been retreating. Saddam was pushing his Fedayeen guys south. They were recruiting these poor guys in these villages. A lot of guys we were fighting didn't even know how to use their weapon, right? Uh, it was just, it was a pretty, uh, they were farmers, uh, a lot of them. Uh, so, some of them were, were uh, Fedayeen or soldiers, but a lot of them were farmers. And that kind of set the stage for what happened on this one one uh, moment. So we're dug in, we're, re- we're waiting resupply, and I remember walking the lines to check on my guys because uh, it was probably five in the morning. I knew as the sun came up, they were going to start, start shooting at us again. And um, I looked up on the highway, and this little white car starts racing toward our position from the north along Route Tampa, uh, Highway Seven. And so, you know, they just started using suicide bombing tactics at that time. And so I thought, well, okay, this guy's packed explosives in the car. They're going to blow themselves up. I grabbed three of my guys to take off running toward this car to get it to stop. And uh, finally, the car stops about 50 meters out. The driver hops out. He's, like, waving his arms frantically and, like, running at me. And so now I think, okay, this guy's strapped a bomb on his his chest. He's going to blow himself up. So I'm yelling at him in Arabic to get on the ground. He's not listening. So as I lift my weapon and I'm getting ready to take him out, I look behind him. And this big black military truck rolls up behind his little white car. Six guys in black jump out. They run up to the car and start shooting into the car. And so this guy starts, stops dead in his tracks, starts screaming, turns around, starts running back to the car. And that's when I realized this guy was one of those poor farmers trying to escape across our lines of safety with his family because he didn't want to fight with the Fedayeen. And so I yelled at my guys to take out the uh, Fedayeen soldiers, and I ran as fast as I could to try to save this guy's family. But by the time I got there, you know, it was too late. I, I looked in the passenger side. His wife had been shot in the face and in the chest, and she was slumped over dead. And he had a little infant in the back. His arm had been shot off, and, and she'd been shot in the head. Uh, and then he was cradling the body of his little girl, who was probably like five or six, and, and, and she'd been shot in the stomach, and she was choking on her own blood, and she was trying to breathe. And, I, man, I tell you what, for the first time in the war, that's the one human moment that I had in the invasion, I, I, 
everything slowed down for me. I put myself in this guy's shoes and I thought, you know, well, I, I live in a world of choices. You know, what do I want my kids to, to grow up to be? You know, where do I want them to live? What were this guy's choices when he woke up this morning? You know, he could like watch his kids starve to death, strap some bomb to himself, pick up a weapon he didn't know how to use. Like, it wasn't fair that the GPS coordinates of these guys' birthplaces dictated what choices they had. And I began to see what I thought was a growing national security problem for us, which was in these really highly impoverished areas where aid groups can go because it's too dangerous, right? These groups, like at the time it was Fedayeen, but then it became Al-Qaeda, and then it became uh, these other cells, and then it became ISIS eventually. They would yeah. go into these impoverished areas and recruit these guys because they had no other options. Yep. Yeah. Right? And they would, that would be the force that we'd be fighting. Yeah. And, and so I began to think, well, somebody's got to do something about this fucking poverty in these really like dangerous places. And, uh, and it can't be these aid workers cause they, you know, they're just not trained to handle it. Right. So that was the beginning of the guys and I, in my unit, I mean, I saw this happen again and again and again, even when I was over at force. And so I started talking to them about some ideas I had to put together a kind of a hybrid unit that could deploy to these gray zones to kind of address that problem. And so I was working on that idea after that last deployment and I, I, I felt so strongly about it. I thought, you know, I, maybe I can make an even bigger impact here if I could build that. You know, if I could build something like that could, to help stop the spread of al-Qaeda and ISIS so then we could isolate the enemy and destroy them uh, without having them continue to grow in these highly impoverished areas. And, and it was hard to get out, man, because a lot of my, you know, the natural, I was at the top, well, quote, unquote, top of my game, you know, as far as right, like, right my my career and and uh you know i was i've been talking to cag recruiters about selection and you know um there's you know they you know the, the all the places that you know these guys like me go afterwards and and um but i decided that that i really wanted to i needed to get off that train and try to figure out a way to solve this new problem because there were too many innocent people who were being exploited um, who were good people just because of where they were born, you know, and that really, it's a, me I great. mean, it's a, it's a harrowing story um, to say the least. Uh, and, and look, you know, I, I've heard horror stories myself from Iraqis that I work with and I trained with, you know, side by side, some of these guys who saved my life, um, you know, drills being used uh, to torture guys, you know, drill bits in their stomach. And uh, you know um, the idea that, you know, go home on leave and, uh, you know, they'd strap a bomb to your doorstep so when they'd see you leave the house in the morning to go get bread for your family, uh, there's a bomb waiting on your front step. Um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, you know, I, I heard it all. Never really saw it up close uh, from that standpoint. But, you know, when you, when you put it in those terms and you realize that, uh, like you said, their GPS coordinates have determined their future, uh, and that is something that categorically is not the way we want the world to be. Unfortunately, it is. Um, again, GPS coordinates of people in China have programmed them to be communist and, and believe that that is a better way of life than capitalism or democracy or whatever you want to call it, whatever it may be, you know, by parliament, you know, pick whatever system you want. But that's what they believe is, is the best because that's all they know. So uh, I, I certainly empathize with those feelings and understand with, uh, what was the driving force behind it. Now, that said, you could have done a hundred different things, went to go work for an NGO. You could have, you know, offered your time into the Peace Corps, whatever it may be. You decided to go to the Stanford freaking school of business 
So uh, I'm not sure how you got from, hey, I want to help people to let me go to one of the most prestigious business schools in the country. Well, okay, so, yeah, it was kind of a weird route. I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a total weirdo, man. Like, I always end up in these, like, crazy, crazy missions, crazy places, uh, crazy strategies. So I, I got out with this kind of vision of, like, what I wanted to do to try to help people. But when I got out, I quickly realized – First, I wanted to like jo- I wanted to join an NGO. I thought there's got to be an NGO doing this right. somewhere, right? There's got to be somebody out there who's working in these gray zones who just needs like kind of like a uh, you know a former operator who can handle themselves, who can actually help with security, I, you know, like to, to be able to work there. And nobody would hire me, <laughs> and so I, I I started getting really frustrated, man. And I was like. I was trying to figure out how to pay my rent. Uh, I, I, had a, I had a pretty low point. I, at one point, I'm like driving a seafood delivery truck, you know, uh, dropping off food at, in San Diego and L.A. and Orange County, like to these high-end restaurants, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, by the way, that ended up being one of the best jobs I think I've ever had. <laughs> it was great for like decompressing and just kind of thinking about things. But, um, but as I'm doing that, I'm trying to think about, okay, well, I got to figure out how to screw those guys. Nobody's going to hire me. I got to build something. Mm-hmm. Right? I got I to build something. I got to figure out how to, how to do this. And my dad had instilled in me this kind of like insane drive and perseverance. It's like uh, He taught me at a really young age. Uh, one time he told me, don't ever say the words I can't. He said, you can do anything you want, right? But you've got to have the determination and perseverance and drive to get it. You got to go after it. So um, that really stuck with me throughout my whole life. And I, I mean, it, looking back on it, it was insanely audacious, right? To think about, I could, I could try to build something that would eradicate extreme poverty and gray zones where other people couldn't do it and, and help stop the spread of Al Qaeda and ISIS. And so I, I realized I needed to build something. So I'm like, okay, well, how do I build something? I had a friend who'd gone to business school and said, well, you should go to business school. You can figure out how to build a company. Uh, I had no, I mean, I had, I had like an engineering degree from school, which I never used. I had no idea about business. I'd never taken accounting or, economics or none of that stuff, right? Marketing. So he's like, go to business school. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I got to apply. So I'm like, I'd heard of Stanford and Harvard. So I applied to those two. And I'm thinking, you know what? If, if God wants me to get to go to business school, he's going to get me into these schools. And then I just kind of forgot about it. I put these applications together and just forgot about it. And was trying to figure out how to build this thing without it. Right. And by some miracle, I, I honestly believe there's some sort of quota out there for a, a knucklehead Marine who's from West Virginia because I got in. And when I got in, I was like, well, shit, now I got to do this. And so I go to Stanford to build this company. And it was, most people go to business school to try to like, you know, launch their, their career in private equity or venture capital or, uh, or consulting, which is cool. You know, Wall Street, whatever. Those are all great careers. For me, like I was going there with like a singular mission to build this company that could eradicate extreme poverty in these gray zones to stop the spread of violent extremists. And, uh, you know, people kind of rallied around that idea. I had like 30 of my classmates help me kind of do the research to build the model. I had six faculty members there came on board and provided like seed funding and mentorship and advice. And, and, uh, I was like going to class and then running these kind of fundraising meetings to try to like raise money. Um, and uh, for every 20 meetings I, I, I got, I got like one maybe, <laughs> you know, so it was, it was rough, man. But by the time I graduated, you know, I just really hustled. And by the time I graduated, I raised about half a million dollars to get started. That's and by insane. the time, 
I graduated in June of 08, and then in September, I packed my bags and moved to Africa. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Nuru is the, uh, uh, is the name of the company that you create, Nuru International. Just out of curiosity, where the name come from? So, Nuru is a Swahili word that means light or hope. Okay, all right. So, you're going to Africa, so it makes a ton of sense. Yep. Um, do you, I mean, the idea is to eradicate poverty, extreme poverty, but, you know, I mean... There's a lot of different ways to execute that. I mean, you know, Elon Musk has, you know, said that $40 billion that he paid for Twitter could eradicate poverty across the world. So <laughs> how, how do you even know how to begin this process? Yeah, so uh, I had developed this model when I was at Stanford, right, with all these smart people trying to help me figure it out. And so by the time I got to, to on the ground, and by the way, when I moved to Africa, like our whole point was to work in these gray zones, these super remote areas, right, where nobody else can access. And I'm basically living in villages for like mm-hmm. seven years, right? And so when I get there with all these ideas, I quickly realize, that, again, I talk about getting humbled. I quickly realize I'm not the smartest guy on the block when it comes to this stuff. Um, the very first week I was on the ground, I got, uh, I got attacked by a pack of thieves. I got black widow spiders and safari ants swarmed my hut. <laughs> Um, we got like a earthquake. I got malaria. Um, this is the first week in the last day of the week. And I'm not, I'm not kidding you about this last day of the week. I got struck by lightning. Um, and so like, that's <laughs> you a pretty can't make bad that week. Up. You can't make that up. No. Know? And so, um, it was a pretty rough start. And you I think? remember going, yeah, I remember going out there with these villagers and trying to understand their world. And, and I had to develop, a lot of humility to try to get to know them. And I learned the power of, I learned this in the Marine Corps too, but the power of servant leadership, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure you're, you, you have used yourself. Uh, but it's this kind of concept of like leading with humility, leading from the front, leading with example, being authentic, putting the needs of your people ahead of your own always, you know? And so we were a different type of NGO. Like we didn't drive around a big, you know, fancy vehicles. Like I walked everywhere with my farmers, right? We walk an hour and a half out to the office with them through the fields. We show up to a meeting, you know, there's like a hundred farmers there. There's 10, 10 chairs. Instead of them going to me and my staff, like we let the old farmers sit there or fertilizer truck pulls up instead of uh, farmers offloading the truck, me and my guys would get up and we'd offload the truck for the farmers. So you started kind of like these farmers started realizing, okay, this guy, these guys are different, right? Like they actually want to get to know us. They want to build this trust. And so we built these incredible bonds that allowed us to, we were all about creating sustainable solutions that the locals could lead and run on their own because that's how you really win in the end. If you just dump a ton of money in there uh, with these kind of outsider solutions that are just paid, uh, bought and paid for by outside money that's coming in, it's like pour money down a black hole. And it's, it's like the old adage, teach a man to fish, right? Yep. It's really important that the local leaders got the know-how and how to do this on their own. And because of that, because that's our model, we build these totally self-sustaining, scaling organizations that are, you know, empowering thousands and thousands of families out of extreme poverty on their own, uh, independent of us. And um, so we started having some, a lot of success there, first in uh, southwest Kenya, then the mountains of southern Ethiopia. I lived there for a while, and then up in northeast Nigeria, in Boko Haram and ISIS West Africa territory. Um, kind of building this out and it started working. Yeah. Um, I don't, I wouldn't even begin to understand how you know that it's working. I mean, that's kind of like my challenge to understand it. I mean, 
because yeah. more people are eating or because they have a better home doesn't mean that you've eradicated poverty. You know, like that's it's tough to well, judge that. Yeah, you're right. So first of all, you have to measure what you do, right? You've got to measure what you do. If you're not measuring what you do, then it, you're wasting money, right? So we have a whole series of a, a measurement and evaluation team that does scientific studies to measure impact of our programs, number okay. one. Number two, um, it, I learned to look at poverty a different way. It's not just economics. We define extreme poverty as a lack of meaningful choices, a lack of a freedom to, to make meaningful choices for your family. All of us want to make meaningful choices for our kids, right? It's like that farmer in Iraq. You know, you want to be able to feed your kids. You want to be able to send them to a good school. You want to be able to give them clothes. You want to be able to, to the, their generation to live better than yours did, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like the, you know, kind of like the American dream. Like you want people to be able to make those choices. And when they are able to make those meaningful choices to have that freedom, then they are, they are on their way out of extreme poverty. Extreme poverty is a condition where you have no agency. You cannot change your situation. Right? Makes sense. Okay. Uh, how long do you do this newer international thing for? So I did that for 12 years. Dear Lord, you didn't live in America <laughs> for 12 years? I, 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 lived, I lived in Africa for eight of those, of those years. Wow. Um, in these villages. And so, I mean, I guess uh, you get to a point where you just get used to it, right? But then again, all those days, as you mentioned, uh, on, West, in, on the West Virginia farm, you know, killing what you eat and dairy products uh, all over the place, which probably had to help your stomach uh, eating the food in Africa at some point in time, and, and <laughs> in did. Iraq for that matter. You know, you had pr- probably had to condition yourself to, uh, to get ready to, uh, you know, not throw up after everything you ate. Regardless, um, <laughs> I, I guess it kind of felt like going back to some of your old roots a little bit. It did. Yeah, I actually remember walking with these farmers a lot. It reminded me a lot as a kid growing up, you know, walking through some of the farms where we lived up in the mountains in West Virginia. So 12 years, what happens that you decide all of a sudden that you want to make a change? So um, in 2015, uh, we, we start we start making a name for ourselves. So despite, you know, all the mistakes I made, flaws I have as a leader, I, I had a, a really amazing team, right? So this team... We started driving some incredible impact, empowered over 140,000 people out of extreme poverty, built a global team of 250, raised about $60 million. So we started getting on people's radar back in the States. And so I got on President Bush and Clinton's radar. They were starting this new program called the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program. And they were looking for their first cohort of leaders. And so they invited me back to participate. But to participate, I had to move back to the States. And I hadn't lived in the States in 15 years. I was, you know, always deployed down range as a Marine. Um, and then I was uh, living in these villages. Um, and so. Wait, are you trying to tell me villagers don't get a home delivery in the New York Times? <laughs> we don't get Amazon. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You're in the Amazon, or close to the Amazon, I should say. You don't get <laughs> Amazon. Right. Got it. They have right. Sahara over there. That's what it is, right? Sahara, Sahara, whatever you want to call it. Sahara. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah. So I, I came back for this program. And man, I was just shocked by what I saw, dude. I, I did not recognize the country that we left to fight for in 2000. Uh, there was this bitter fear and hatred ripping the country apart. You had uh, extremism had crept into our politics and into our political system that was destroying value for the American citizen. Americans had no agency. Talking about meaningful choices, Americans had no, no ability to choose for themselves what was happening in their lives anymore. You had this government that was totally unresponsive. 
And um, it was not what I had, me and my buddies had gone downrange to fight for. This idea of America that could be so promising and such a light and beacon for the rest of the world had become degraded and it had become infected with this disease of extremism. And I had been fighting extremism overseas for so long that I didn't realize it wasn't going to be ISIS or Al Qaeda that beat us. It was going to be us. And so I started getting really sad, man, because, you know, as you know, um, we've had brothers and, and sisters who've died, who paid the ultimate sacrifice defending this idea of America against our enemies overseas. And, um, you know, it was all going to be taken away by us. So then I got really pissed off. I'm like, okay, I got to do something about this. And in the beginning, I was like, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. And I, I, I had some of my mentors be like, hey, man, you should run, you know, run for office. I'm like, that's a terrible idea. I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> that's a terrible idea. <laughs> it was a terrible idea. So then I started looking at, at, at other ways that, you know, we might be able to pull something together. So I had a bunch of my investors who've been backing me for about eight years who really wanted me to tackle this problem. You know, they're like, hey, look, you know, we, we believe our, our democracy is in crisis right now. We, we, we're not sure our kids are going to have a country left to inherit. Um, we saw you as a total outsider. You were a Marine who disrupted the aid industry with this new model that had global impact. Would you, as an outsider, again, take a look at the politics industry and see if there's a way to help build a center in our politics, help the country heal? And so I started uh, about a four-month deep dive into what's out there, what's working, what's not working, and why. And I put together this idea, and um, I circulated this plan to a bunch of my mentors. I had like you know, Jim Mattis and John Allen and President Bush, a few other people who gave me some great feedback on it and said, you know, you should do this. And, and so I put together a 12-month transition plan out of Nuru, out of, out of my organization. I want to make sure that that mission continued um, strong. And I uh, was able to hand off the reins in June of 2020. And, uh, and I mean, they're crushing it. I think they just had to get rid of me. And then uh, <laughs> that uh, July of 2020, then I set up this new entity called More Perfect Union, um, which is uh, seeking to help uh, strengthen and defend and preserve our democracy. I have my book right here. See? <laughs> nice. nice. It's on my desk. Um, and, and that brings us, for the audience's sake, as to how you and I cross paths at your inaugural uh, Brickyard Breakfast that you guys had here in the Atlanta area. Uh, and I was invited by Garrett Cathcart, a friend of mine, former guest here on the show, um, and, and current Army Reserve officer, um, and just a fantastic human being. Uh, mm. He invited me, and, and it was great to, to meet you and understand the whole thing. And um, while we have, have done a very good job at uh, you know uh, avoiding heated political discourse on this show, being that what you're doing right now is so critical to uh, – a lot of the future of this country, uh, it, it bears worth repeat or it bears at least discussing, I should say, you know, I, I think you, when they asked you to, to get back the middle ground, I think with the 2016 election, um, the middle ground was gone. Uh, it, it has been seated and we have devolved into, uh, opposition politics and, and to a point where even on one side, it's, if you're not with me, you're against me. Mm -hmm. Um, you're not allowed to have differing opinions within the same party anymore. You're not allowed to have differing, differing opinions from anybody anymore. And it has become a, um, you know, outsider versus insider mentality. Um, and, and those in power have, have struggled for so long for so hard to hold on to their position, um, that we have not, uh, we, we have not done our due diligence. One of the best things about the military and you understand this and, and, 
why I'm a huge advocate of term limits for every single elected official, even down to city ward positions, mm-hmm. um, is one, it allows the garden to be turned over routinely. Uh, and, and after a while, it's necessary. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody who is in command has ever realized that at a certain point, you reach what I have learned uh, is called hull velocity. I'm not a boater. I'm not a sailor. But somebody used that terminology with me. And for those who don't know what it is, the way a, sh- a boat is built because of its hull will allow it to hit a maximum speed. And it cannot physically go any faster because of the yep. way it is built. Well, uh, you will hit hull velocity at some point in command, probably about two or three years in, right? Uh, nothing will get any better. You'll only get diminishing returns. You may be able to maintain for a certain period of time, but you're going to stall. It's just human nature. Uh, and so, you know, I, I have long screamed that we should term limit everybody, uh, for crying out loud. But nonetheless, I, I think what you are doing um, speaks right to the heart of a lot of the things that I've felt for quite some time. And I'm like you. I've, I've, I've contemplated back and forth about running for political office, but... At this point, some of that seems a lot more self-serving than anything else because mm. now it's become like coal mining. And you're from West Virginia. You don't understand that. You can't wash it off. Right. You, you, you bring all that with home with you. It doesn't go away. It doesn't mm. matter how many showers you take. It's under your fingernails. It's under your toenails. It's in your breath. It's in your lungs. It, it's part of you. So you're, you're not ever going to – you're not going to change the political system from the inside out. That's not going to happen. You need, you need a meteor to strike the political system and, <laughs> and, and, and knock it on its ass in order for it to be different. That's what we're building. We're building the meteor. Let's build the meteor then. I'm, I'm all for it because I've, I've had about enough of this crap. That's right. So have you thought about how you want to execute this? Yeah, we've thought a lot about it. So, so uh, and, and That was a bad be- question. Um, <laughs> that was a bad question. Yes, you've thought about it. Clearly, you went to Stanford Business School. You, you've thought well, about a lot of things in your life. Um, okay, let me rephrase. Let, let, let me talk about it. Yeah, Explain I'll, 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 how you execute this, please. There you go. Thank there you, you go. So, I mean, it's, it's based around a really fundamental principle um, that I think is being overlooked by a lot of groups trying to do something about this problem. And that is we are leveraging the what I believe is the best strategic asset this country has, the best strategic untapped asset that this country has, and that's our veterans. And we are taking veterans and we are giving them one more tour. Um, that we need them to pull off. And this one is for, for the whole shebang, right? This is to save our country, save our democracy here at home. They served us honorably overseas, risk, risked everything overseas. Now I, I need, I'm calling on veterans to risk everything here to get at home to, to, to protect and preserve what we all fought so hard for over there. And it, it comes uh, in two different strategies. Um, our, our biggest and most important strategy is, a, is a, uh, a strategy to heal the divide that's ripping the country apart. And that's what you were a part of the other day. Um, we are building a veteran-led movement for healing and reform. So why veterans? Veterans are the last trusted institution in the country. On both the left and right, uh, people still respect the military and they respect veterans. And they have incredible convening power, right? The vision for this is to become the next generation civic organization for the country. So you've heard of like Rotary Club, Kiwanis Club, Lions Club, yep. all those guys. Yeah. They're all sadly in decline, right? Nobody's joining those things anymore. We need a new generation to inspire Gen Z, Gen X, millennials to really get involved and take ownership of our democracy. Not sit on the sidelines and be passive, but get our hands dirty and own our democracy. We've got to take it back. And so that starts by building these chapters. We're building chapters all over the country. 
These are veteran-led chapters, but they're they're not veterans helping veterans. It's veterans mobilizing and catalyzing civilians to come together from the left and right into these chapters. So what are they doing when they come together? There's three key activities. Civic education, learning more about our democracy and what's it all about. Leadership training, specifically servant leadership training, so we can learn how to serve uh, each other better and lead our communities. And finally, um, community service projects, community service work. We believe that it's really important that Americans get in the trenches together and get our hands dirty together, break bread together, have tough conversations together. Think about it. We're downrange in the fighting hole, right? And we got rounds going downrange, and we're like, we got our weapons trained on an enemy target, both you and the guy to your left and right trained on the same target. You don't care or give a shit what that guy looks like, where they come from, yep. what color their skin is, what language, you know, what, what language they speak. You're training on the same target. We need a common target to go after, right? We need to find this common ground, and we've got to come together physically to do that. Our you know, media celebrities and our political leaders have succeeded in dehumanizing the other side. And so what we're doing is we're humanizing one another again. As you know, dehumanization is a tactic in combat, yep. right? We've got to humanize one another again by coming physically together and realizing we actually have a lot more in common than we thought, right? We have, we have higher ground, not just common ground, higher ground that we're pursuing to get together to be able to bring this country together. Because only if we can get Americans physically together again from both sides, working together on a common purpose, are we, are we going to be able to save this country? So the movement is critically important. The other thing that we're doing is uh, on the political side is we are recruiting country-first combat veterans who don't want to run, so maybe you, um, to get into the fight and run for Congress, run for, run for Senate, Help us build out the center in our politics, you know, to get the crazy out and actually build a coalition in the middle of country first folks who understand the cost of freedom to be able to help us lead this new generation, this new cadre of leaders for the country to lead us in a new direction, to lead us away from the extremes, get us back and focused on what America is all about so that we can be a beacon of freedom for the rest of the world again. Yeah, I mean it's listen, uh I'm in. You know, you, you you guys sold me from from day one, from moment one. Uh get out the crazy was, you know, was the, was the easy line. Uh, <laughs> uh we've got to that point, but you know, you look, you talk about servant leadership, right? And and the price of leadership is self-sacrifice, right? Like that is the that that is the generic part of leadership that I think our politicians have lost. It's they, they have lost the idea of self-sacrifice. Sure, it's great to say, oh, I do this for my constituents. You do it for a vote. You do it for a vote, right? Like you're not – everything is geared behind somebody fundraising or somebody securing a vote for their next election. Like, And the problem is we see through all that. Most people, at least I feel like I'm, it's easy to see through if you just pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure, I'm not saying that some of the things that they do don't have positive effects on people and positive effects on people in the area which they are representing. Um, but that's not, again, uh, I, I don't, I just try to relate it to my military experience. You know, like I don't run my unit better because of anything other than everybody else benefits from it. You know, I, I've, I've never done anything with the concept of, well, my Raider is really going to like this kind of deal. You know, like I've never thought about, I've just thought if I do my job and I do it well, 
The rating takes care of itself. I don't even worry no. about it. It's never it's never on my uh, my 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 scope to think of. Well, how is it? What's going to be my personal benefit from this? The benefit is is that the people that I'm leading are all benefiting from my leadership, mm-hmm. and and that that is enough. Um, you know, so often, um, you know, we 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 get rated on personality as opposed to performance, right. and uh, uh, that's that. It, it permeates into politics. You can get elected on on personality over performance. You don't really have to be that good at what you do anymore. Heck, there are people who have been elected repeated times who haven't done anything in years. That's right. Um, but just because people like them and they're there, it's an easy choice. And and uh, we need we need more action and less talk and less personality. We just need rubber to meet road on a routine basis. And I'll tell you where that shows up is, uh, and and you'll you'll get this is. It's all for these leaders. It's all about courage, right? And I'm not talking about physical courage. You know, you're not going to go to Washington and get shot at. All, well, I mean, maybe someday, but <laughs> ho- hopefully not. Um, right. You know, it's not. It's not necessarily about physical courage. It can be, but it's. But it's more importantly about moral courage. We need leaders who will simply wake up and do the right thing. Do the right thing. You know, do the right thing, not for yourself, do the right thing for the people of this country and for the idea of America. Like, that's what our leaders need to do. They need to serve. They need to sacrifice. They need to do the right thing. Right. And doing the right thing is hard. But people with our background understand how to do that. They've been tested when everything mattered. Right. And the good ones put the needs of their men and women first and their own lives last, right? And we can, they've been tested. So let's get those people leading this country. You know, let's get those individuals, those heroes leading the country who understand what it means to sacrifice and serve other people. You know? I asked you before about when you were doing Nuru about how you knew you were, you were being successful. How do, you, how do you measure progress in this area? Yeah, so... Um, there's a lot of, it, it, it's the healing part is the, is the tough part to measure, mm-hmm. right? Because that is, um, it, it seems kind of amorphous. It seems kind of intangible, but there are, there are surveys and, and, and things that we're doing right now, longitudinal studies to try to figure out in our chapters, are we having impact in bringing people together? But there's, there are um, impacts in society that are going to take decades. That mission, the movement side is going to take decades. Right. If we don't start it now, it's going to be too late, but it's going to take a while for this to bring the country together in a real way to where we're not afraid to to go out and be in a civic organization or a um, a religious organization like a church or synagogue or whatever it is with somebody from the other side. Right. Or we're not afraid for our daughter to go marry somebody from the other political party. Right. There's like intangible things like that that are kind of just part of our battle rhythm, part of our, our way of life right now that have caused us to be siloed from the other side that we will begin to experience and get to know people from the other side on a more routine basis. It'll be like breathing. You're not, you don't begin to see people, okay, that's red or blue. That person's red or blue. You see them as an American, as a person, you know, and we've got to get to that place. Um, 
And of course, on the political side, too, it's like you got to win elections. You got to get these country first folks in, you know, so they can start making a difference in delivering and fixing our political system so it doesn't incentivize extremist behavior. It doesn't incentivize showboats on CNN and Fox and MSNBC just trying to make a name for themselves so they can make more money, right? Like they need to deliver results for the American people, and that's very measurable. Well, unfortunately, you're up against a machine that is called social media that I think presents an enormous challenge from an information sharing standpoint, from an idea sharing standpoint, from a echo chamber standpoint, um, where you can have these pockets that may be incredibly hard to penetrate, but necessary Mm -hmm. to be able to do because that's sort of, I mean, you know, what social media has done when you talk about extremism, right? It has allowed these people to not have to physically be together to get together. And that is a dangerous thing. Um, and we're learn- we've learned this through, you know, radical extremism uh, for ISIS or, or mm-hmm. you know, Al-Qaeda, whatever it is on the Internet. I mean, we've seen it. Multi- the Boston Marathon bombers, perfect example. They've never been to any Muslim extremist, you know, mosques, synagogue, whatever you want to call it. And yet somehow on the Internet, these guys find out, found out this was the way that their destiny was going to be fulfilled by killing Americans. And so, um, you know... Is that even on your, your radar at this point? Like, how do you create a, a counter social media movement that can be as big as the one that you're going up against? So two things. One is um, our strategy is pretty nuts. It's a 10 plus year strategy with multiple phases. Later phases, we actually have some ideas we're putting together for social media. Okay. Um, uh, attack. Well, not attack, but I don't want to use that language, but counter strategy. But in the early phases, it's really important to get people physically together. You yes. yourself. You got to get people out of their basement, um, out of their rooms, and into the public square, meeting other Americans, doing good things for the community that everybody benefits from. Right? Everybody's kids benefit from a new playground being put up in the in the local area. Right? Everybody benefits from the community center um, getting a new roof. Right? Or getting a new paint job so that so that we can come together and do more cool stuff together as a community, right? Like there's common basic things that we can do together, but we got to get out of our houses, out of our silos, out of our echo chambers. We've got to pull people out to do that, right? So yes, social media is a big problem, but what we can't do is like wring our hands and say, well, this is an unsolvable problem. We got these tech billionaires that are driving it. No, we got to start by getting people physically together. And then we'll have a strategy to be able to attack that later on down the road once we build momentum with real people. Yeah, you can you can fit the uh, the amount of problems that have been solved on Twitter into a thimble. So uh, <laughs> you're, you're not going to have a, a lot of things be solved there. That's for sure. But they can be solved in a, in a room together with people, uh, and that. Yeah, you know, it, it goes back to the, to, to the basic premise. You know, for all these years in the guard, when when soldiers wouldn't show up to drill, I would literally tell my my folks, get in a car and drive to their front door. <laughs> like, get in a Humvee and drive to their front door and knock on their door. Watch their... Go get them. Like, it's... You can call. You can text. And they can respond or they can not respond. Yeah. You bang on their door with a Humvee at their front door, it's... Oh, okay, you guys are serious. Yeah, we're serious. Come to work. <laughs> right? Like, it's that sort of idea that you're, you're, you're using that if we all just show up to work together physically in the same place and post covid you know it's it's it, it's an exercise that we have to re remind ourselves that's, that's right. normal um but it's one of those things where it, it is the basis for the best form of communication which is face to face yep 
Absolutely, brother. So, I mean, look, I, I, I told you, I'm in. I'm on board. Uh, I, I love the breakfast. I love what you guys did. Um, I didn't mind that it was 7 a.m. because you gave me free food. So it's always <laughs> great. It's always, it's always great uh, to see, you know, that the, the, the idea is that you are, again, getting people together uh, and really finding a way for them to uh, begin to share ideas that might not otherwise be easier easy to share, right? Like, I mean, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Uh, All right. So where can we go for more Perfect Union online um, and and what we can check out? It's mpu.us, correct? That's correct. mpu.us. And uh, yeah, get engaged with us. Um, help us. Help us start a chapter in your area. You know, definitely a special call out to veterans. You can start mobilizing veterans to get involved. We're actually doing our first fellows training program at the university of montana in august mm-hmm. um and that'll train our first kind of cohort of leaders that are going to go across the country and start launch these for this first set of chapters but we're looking for veterans to kind of do this and scale it up quickly because we believe we're running out of time you know and so we need to get out to communities as fast as we can i have to ask you because uh, i saw this on your resume and i know you're very humble but i am going to bring it up here uh and no it's not about military awards but Apparently, you got to meet the Dalai Lama. <laughs> His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Yeah, that's right. What? what, what I, first of all, full disclosure, I have no idea what the Dalai Lama looks like. When you say <laughs> Dalai Lama, I think of like the actual Lama. Uh, and my kids will listen to Lama Lama Pajama. Uh, that's right. So, that's right. you know, that's where my head goes. Either that or it goes to Christopher Walken saying, uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, <laughs> in, uh, in Wedding Crashers. So, uh, what is that experience like? And, and, how Dolly is the llama? Oh man, it was uh, it was kind of nuts. I mean, I remember. So, is this award called um, Unsung Hero of Compassion? And so, uh, while I was living in Africa and I was doing this work, uh, I remember getting it. Uh, I, I don't know how they found me. I got this email that said, "Hey, you know, the Dalai Lama would like to give you an award <laughs> as an unsung hero of compassion." So, of course, I think it's spam, right? <laughs> so, I just delete it. And I kept getting these emails, and, I, I mean, I, and so eventually I get kind of upset. I'm like, "Well, look, these people are just—they're really good. They at are ruthless. <laughs> they're ruthless." So eventually, I kind of email back and say, "Hey, this is—you know, whatever stunt this is, I'm out here. It's interfering with my work. You know, I'm trying to do real work here. Just let me alone. Just let me do my thing." And they're like, "No, no, we're serious. We need you to come back to the states to accept this award. He's going to be in San Francisco on this date." I'm like. So I was like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> holy, holy, his holiness, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I did, man. I came back and I had to like, I had like one suit. And so I had to like figure out what storage unit that was in. Um, go find the suit, put it on and showed up at this uh, fancy th- shindig thing in San Francisco. And they, they blocked off like four city blocks to like protect this, him and, and yeah, sure enough, there he was. He he uh, he gave a speech and and um, gave twenty of us this award. So it was kind of nuts. All, all when I, when you talk, all I hear in the background is oh, <laughs> going on the whole time. Like, I just have this this weird picture of chimes just going off in the background uh, the entire time, and you know, bright lights hanging above his head, or you know, whatever. He, he was actually a pretty funny, dude. Oh, really? Yeah. Does it change? Like, does the Dalai Lama change? Do they? Is is it like? Do you pass it off to somebody else? I'm so uneducated about the Dalai Lama. I am too, but I think so. 
Oh, yeah, okay. I think I think once he dies, there's another guy, right? So is it like with, like with the Pope? They got to go in a room and puff a white smoke, and then we all see <laughs> I'm Catholic. That. So that I know, I don't know anything about Buddhism. I'm um, not sure either. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. I guess uh, that's what the internet's for, right? Um, <laughs> as you go through this, you know, just a couple final thoughts here. As you go through this, uh, is there any part of you that gets disillusioned? Like even with Nuru, is there any part of you that's like, "Damn, man, what the hell am I doing? Like this is this is not working." I mean, sure, man. There's a lot of days where you wake up and you're like. You know, you get knocked down a lot um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, in in uh, in Nuru, I'd have you know I'd have uh, farmers die of starvation. Yeah, you know that role my that I knew, and I was enrolled in our program, and you know, or they'd uh, somebody get killed, or you know whatever it was. Um, it was really hard, and I rem- I remember like, and even this work right now is like. There are days I wake up. I, pr- I wake up every morning praying that I, I will know the, have the wisdom to know the right thing to do and the strength to do it. Um, because I think this is probably the hardest mission I've ever had. And um, Saying a I lot. think, yeah. And, and I think that, uh, you know, what I tell other, other folks or who are trying to start something is I always say, look, you got to have your what I call get out of bed factor, right? Because there's days where, and you know these days where you do not want to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, you got a close person to you die, or you know, you're running out of money, or um, you know, your your project just totally failed. What whatever it was, like there has got to be that root cause and reason for why you're on this mission, doing what you're doing. And for Nuru, it was that Iraqi farmer in Iraq. I had to constantly remember that look in his eyes. You know, for this new mission to help save American democracy, it's, you know, my friends and, and, and brothers who, who sacrificed everything to uh, protect and defend this idea of America. And we're not going to lose it because we defeat ourselves. I'm not going to allow that to happen. You know, not on our watch. Uh, greater fear for you personally, combat and dying or failing at one of your post-military endeavors? Uh, failing. Failing. Because I it was always... The, my, my biggest fear in combat was that one of my guys would die. I would fail them. I have a, I have a horrible fa- fear of failure, failing those who love me and who I love. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it is not a fear of, you know, my own personal loss or something like that. It's a failure that I'm going to let someone down that I really uh, care about or somebody I'm leading or somebody I love dearly. Well, I mean, listen, uh, I, I, uh, I, one hundred percent stand behind the efforts. Um, Thanks, I applaud it. I, I was. I feel very lucky to have been considered um, to be part of this whole thing uh, on any size, way, shape, or form. Uh, and, and again, I love the concept from start to finish. But uh, just know you've got a lot of people, you know, both publicly and privately backing you uh, and supporting you for for what you're going to do. Again, it's uh, mpu.us for more perfect union. Join the movement, guys. It's it's absolutely worth it. Um, and and there is no better reasoning to do it than to help America just be better. Even if you don't think America is failing or going in the wrong direction, the idea that you think that we've reached our apex as a country is flawed in and of itself because there's always going to be improvement because there's always going to be change. If it's one thing that American history has taught us is that we're never static. We're always going forward. And as we go forward, we're going to have stumbles like your story and mine include, but um, we're never a, a finished product. America is never democracy is never a finished ideal. And mm-hmm. so this uh, this is one way to always continue to make it better. Um, 
listen, it's been amazing talking to you. I, I could probably do this for another couple of hours and share a hell of a lot more stories and some laughs, but uh, you've got to go save America, and, and I've got to go do whatever podcasters <laughs> do in their spare time. No, I kid. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's been great talking to you, Jake. I, I, I mean, it's been amazing getting to know you a little bit better. I'm glad Me you devoted the time to this, uh, and, and I can't wait for the rest of the world to hear this story, brother. Thank you, brother, for the opportunity. I'm honored and humbled to be on the podcast. Jake Harriman, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.